Thank you, Keith. Good afternoon, everyone. And, uh, I have to say that when I walked in this afternoon, um, my little heart gave a bit of a jump of joy that uh, the screens have finally gone. Yeah, it's good. I feel less like a, a reptilian exhibit at the zoo than I have on previous visits. It's a uh, grand. Really. And I'm just so glad to be with you and uh, pleased to see if you have visitors among you. I had a few moments to have a chat with some of your visitors. It's lovely to see you and lovely to see all of you here today. Some years ago I was uh, in Uganda. Uh, I was up in the, the north of the country and I was taken along with my hosts to a large gathering of God's people, Christians, and it was convened under a large makeshift canopy. If you uh, travel in Africa and you've been to outdoor meetings there, you will be familiar with that. Many hundreds of people protected from the sun by this canvas or whatever overhead. Now, I wasn't there as the preacher. Um, the, the guest was the bishop of the diocese who had only recently been appointed, and also members of the government we're going to be there. So for the Ugandan people, this was actually a very big deal indeed. And uh, myself and my party, we arrived a little after the, the advertised start time. But again, if you've travelled in Africa, you'll know that you know, people run on kingdom time really out there, so it's a very flexible thing. But to my horror, I mean, normally I'm embarrassed if I arrive somewhere late, that wasn't so bad, but to my horror, what happened when I arrived is I was asked to remain outside for a moment or two, and someone went into the tent to find me a place to sit. And uh, the place they found me was disconcertingly near the front of the tent, within almost touching distance of uh, the bishop. And what made it even worse was that I knew what had been said to the people who were asked to move. They were approached and they were told this, someone more important than you has come, you must move, you must move. Now, that was discomforting, you understand that? Of course, it's a, it's a cultural thing, I'm not making a judgement about it, I'm simply saying that's how it, how it was there. Well, I was thinking about that whilst looking at this passage, because in Mark's Gospel, in general, and in Mark chapter 10 in particular, Jesus is actually turning on its head, or turning inside out, or just simply overturning the basis on which the people of his day generally regarded somebody as being important. That's what's happening here. And, and right through Mark's Gospel, you've got actually three accounts. I know one was, well, one of the earlier verses of the chapter were, were taken last week. I won't go over those again. Uh, but there are three um, things which happen and are recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, uh, which show that uh, people who are often considered to be unimportant in the world actually matter to God a very great deal. And we have that in those first ten verses, uh, that knotty, contentious subject of divorce. Whatever we make of Jesus' teaching there, or the teaching about divorce in the Bible in other places, what emerges quite clearly from this uh, beginning of Mark's Gospel is that women matter. They matter far too much to be treated as property. They are not possessions, they are people. 
In a relationship, they have rights. And they have the right, according to Jesus, to not be discarded carelessly at the whim of a man. And that's what comes out in that teaching of Jesus in the early part. You see, now this is a, this is a, 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 a patriarchy. This is a male-dominated first-century society that Jesus is teaching into. And he's teaching quite clearly, and of course his own relationship to women, underline this, that women are important to God, and therefore they must be considered to be important per se, and they must be treated as if they were, and indeed because they are, important to, to us. Well, now we pick up the instance, which, uh, the passage which has been allotted to me, and that's as we've heard read uh, in verses 13 to 16, the little children and Jesus. And there's something rather rather unattractive going on here. Uh, parents are bringing their children to Jesus so that he might bless them, touch them, pray for them, smile on them. And uh, the disciples have taken on themselves to, I mean, Americans, uh, with their, their love of American football, uh, of course would understand this term, they've taken on themselves to run interference. You see that? They're, they're blocking access to Jesus. They're turning parents away because children aren't going to bring anything to the party, are they? They're not going to make a contribution to this new movement. They don't have any influence. They don't really have a voice. Far less do they have a vote. And Jesus is very busy. And Christ is very stern with his disciples. The Bible says he was indignant other versions say he was angry. The King James Authorised Version says he was sore displeased. So he was ticked off, wasn't he? And he says to his disciples, in effect, this Where do you get off deciding who is and who is not worth me spending time with? It is not for you to decide who gets face time with me, is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. In fact, he says, these children do matter, young though they are, even if they are babies in arms, they matter to God, they should matter to you, and in fact, he says, you could learn a lesson or two from children. You see how he's overturning the popular notion as to who was and who was not to be treated as if they were important. I, I've occasionally found myself wondering, how important do you have to be to get to the point where if someone kills you, you've not been murdered but assassinated. Have you ever wondered <laughs> about that? How important do you have to be to be considered a VIP, a very important person? I looked up, apparently the term VIP was probably first used round about in the middle of the 19th century. And it was generally reserved for high-ranking military personnel. But uh, children in first century Israel not really very important. Women, not really very important to the people of that time and that place. And of course, if we were to jump, and I will just for a moment, if we jump to the end of Mark 10, we find Jesus engaging with a disabled person who was again seen as being not very important. Not worth Jesus stopping and spending time with him. In fact, he's called in the Bible, the passage is headed, blind Bartimaeus. He's defined by his disability. 
blind Bartimaeus. I, I went online last night to have a little look and find out what I could about one of the contestants in Strictly Come Dancing. I wanted to find out about the young lady who is hearing impaired or deaf. And there's masses online about the deaf girl on Strictly. Isn't it interesting how we define people often by their disability? And so you see you've got the, the women and the children and the disabled and Jesus thinks they're all incredibly precious and incredibly important and no less entitled, not that any of us are, but no less entitled to spend time with Jesus than anybody else. Well, uh, of course we're looking now at the encounter between Jesus and the the rich young man. Um, the, this whole incident must have puzzled the disciples, really. You, you see, uh, Jesus uh, opens his arms, as it were, to, to, to receive women, to receive children, to receive the disabled, but when somebody comes on the scene who actually could contribute to the cause, somebody who knows people, somebody who's got some clout, somebody who's got some money, somebody who's going places, a mover and a shaker, a, an influencer, that person, Jesus seems in no hurry to recruit. This must have puzzled the disciples. So let, let's think about it. Um, he's a very sad case, I think, this rich young man about whom we read in Mark chapter 10. Um, I'll tell you why I think it's sad. It's sad because he had so much going for him. He got so much right, didn't he? So much right. I'm just going to point out one or two of his obvious things. First of all, he came to Jesus in the right way. The right way. He came running, the Bible says, and he came kneeling. He approached Jesus urgently. I, I don't think there's any reason to doubt, but he approached Jesus sincerely. He comes running and he approached him respectfully. This wasn't taking the knee as an almost political point or to show an allegiance to a certain group. This, this was respectful, kneeling in front of someone who, whom he esteemed to be more important than himself. He came to Jesus in the, in the right way. Years ago I worked, uh, part of my work when I was with the Birmingham City Mission was uh, manning the Christian bookstore in the famous Birmingham rag market, selling Christian books and Bibles. Not probably a great surprise to some of you. Somebody heard me preaching once in the open air and then remarked afterwards, hmm, you're more Barrow Boy than Harrow Boy, aren't you? <laughs> so you must pitch me in the Birmingham Bullring Rag Market many years ago, selling books and Bibles off from the market store. And, and a chap came up and said, to, so he said, do you have any books uh, here on any religions other than Christianity? I said, no, I, I don't have any books on any religions other than Christianity. This is a a Christian bookstore. I said, but tell me, before you left, tell me, why do you want a book on a religion other than Christianity? He said, well, he said, I've had a bit of a dabble in Christianity. And I didn't think much to it, so I thought I'd have a dabble in some of the others as well. I said, let me save you some time. You will not find anything of any worth or value in any religion if all you're going to do is dabble in it. You know, splash around in the margins. Probably told you before, the, the European on a safari, photo safari in, in Africa, filling in the, the guest book, uh, the visitor's book in the 
game laws before he went home. And he wrote in, said, wonderful time, wonderful scenery, beautiful animals and lovely hospitality. But then he wrote this in the visitor's book, in the guest book. He said, a bit disappointed we didn't see any crocodiles. Next person to come along looked at it and wrote underneath it, try swimming. <laughs> try swimming. You'll find that they are there. You see, get in, get in deep. You see the problem? And this man is he's not dabbling. I think his whole, everything about him breeds earnestness. His sorrow at the end when things don't work out shows that his inquiry, I believe, was sincere. He came to Jesus in the right way. There was something missing in his life, something all his morality, and there's no question about his morality. All his religion, all his influence in his community, all the respect in which his peers held him, the regard they had for him, but it wasn't meeting the real need in his heart. Somebody has said deep down below the surface of the average man's conscience, he hears a voice whispering, saying, something is not right. Something is not right. I believe that's what he was hearing. And so he comes running and kneeling to Jesus. He had spiritual needs. We all have needs. We have physical needs. Some of them, were, I mean, we need them so much, we, we have physical needs that we have to meet in order to survive. We have social needs. We also have spiritual needs. We need to be happy. We need to be significant. We need to be in relationship with people for mental health and well-being. But we also have spiritual needs. And this man had spiritual needs and they were not being met by his religion. And they were not being met by his wealth. His peace of heart was not, did not correlate with the size of his bank balance. There was something missing in his life. And so he comes not aggressively demanding from Jesus, not sauntering up with his hands in his pocket saying, if you've got a few moments, do you think we can, you know, no rush, just have a little bit of a chat, I'm a bit of a student of philosophy and theology, and be great if we can have a few moments. To... No, no, no. Running, kneeling, publicly, this man was earnest. That's how we must come, to Jesus. And the second thing he got right was this, he came to the right person, didn't he? He came to Jesus. He had a question about eternal life. So he came to talk to Jesus about it. I mean, who are you going to go to? Who do you go to? Or who do you go to keep Radio 4 listeners happy? To whom do you go for, for advice when you need it? I mean, sometimes I talk to groups of young people. I love to ask them this question. When you've got a problem, to whom do you go? Who do you ask for advice when you, when you need someone to give you a bit of a help and a bit of a hint? Well, of course, friends... Internet, uh, magazines, you, 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 I mean, I, I, uh, I still take, uh, I have a subscription to two or three magazines, which are uh, in connection with my hobby, uh, which have question and answer pages. You, you know magazines have this, don't you? I remember reading one that, uh, before I was speaking at a youth camp a while ago, uh, I, I read uh, the question and answer section, the agony answer section. Do you know what I mean by that? In, in, in a magazine. And... Uh, one of the questions was very memorable. The question was, uh, a young person wrote in and said, I I'm having terrible nightmares uh, every night. I'm seeing demons and all sorts of horrific things in my, in my nightmares. What can I do? And the, the advice columnist in the magazine said, I advise you to go and find a spiritist church and speak to them about it. Confess at the risk of speaking 
out of turn. It sounded kind of akin to saying, there's a fire raging in my back garden, what shall I do? Well, I suggest you throw petrol at it. But, you see, that's what you get, you get advice. So you need to go to the right people for advice. And this person went to Jesus for advice, because quite frankly, Jesus knew what he was talking about. And the advice of somebody who knows what they're talking about is always worth a great deal more than the speculation of people who do not. He not only spoke with authority, he backed up his powerful words with powerful actions which confirmed that what he was saying was right. Do you get that? He proved that he knew what he was talking about. When he said, God is like this and you can take it from me, which is effectively what he said, he knew what he was talking about. And he proved that he had the right to be as emphatic as that by the powerful, wonderful things which he did. So he came in the right way and he came to the right person. And thirdly, he came at the right time. He came whilst he was young. And I'm going to offer you three reasons why that was the right time for him to come. Number one is this, that young people tend to be more open-minded than older people. Now I can speak because I've been on both sides of the fence. I was young once. And I'll be 73 next year, which to my next month, which doesn't seem to me to be very old, but let's not kid ourselves, it's no longer young. And I know I see, even in myself, and I've been someone who in the churches for 50 years has often been an uncomfortable fit in many churches because I agitate for change. I, I want to encourage change because all living things must change. Growth requires change. Uh, but you know, the older I get, the less keen on change I become. The more inclined I am to resist it. And uh, that's how it goes. Young people are more open-minded generally than older people. Just as their bodies are more flexible, so are their minds. They are more willing and more ready to think about things and to take on and embrace new ideas. The second reason it was the right time was because he was young and strong. He had, in all probability, many years of life left to him. A preacher, an evangelist, went out once preaching the gospel, came back after preaching at an event, and someone said, how did it go? How did you get on tonight? He said, well, a wonderful time. We had one and a half people saved. One and a half people saved, converted, come to Christ. You can make, you know, choose your own sin. One and a half people saved. An old man and a young teenager. And their question said, I suppose you mean that the uh, old man was the one and the teenager was the half. He said, no, exactly the other way around. I'm glad the older person was saved, but their life is nearly over. They've got way more history than they've got future in this world. They have very limited time now in which to serve Jesus. But the youngster, God willing, they've got a life to live for Jesus. Do you see, come to Christ while you're young. Follow him while you're young. Before, as the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, the evil times come and the years begin to draw nigh. And it was the right time because it was when Jesus was near. It was his moment. It was his opportunity. Jesus was not going to linger in that particular place. He was effectively passing through. Come on. That's the right time when you hear the Lord calling you. Saying, you come to me. You put your life in my hands. See what we'll do together. Wonderful thing. You know, we never know what's going to 
what the Lord is going to do with us when we put ourselves in his hands and say, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. Tremendous adventures. But I believe the Lord has in store for many, many people. It was his time. I was in uh, Moldova, some of you know I get over to Eastern Europe quite a lot, or did pre, pre-Covid. I'm planning to be back there this November, December. Uh, God willing, forward slash Covid permitting, etc. Uh, making plans and hoping to be out there again. I was in Moldova some while ago. I was explaining the good news about Jesus to probably about 30 people gathered in a, 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 a very well-off person's home. That's relatively unusual in Moldova. It's a very poor country. And I was in the home, I was explaining the good news about Jesus and inviting people to, to follow Christ, to become Christians. And uh, afterwards, one woman was sitting absolutely sobbing. And I asked my translator to explain to me what was going on. And she was just repeating to herself again and again, this is my time. This is my time. And then she explained through my translator that she had asked Christ to be her saviour that evening and that this was the time that God, it was God's time for her. Do you get that? I'm not explaining very well, but it was God's time for her. She had that sense. At the age of 18, I had a sense like that. The night I became a Christian, the night I gave my life to Christ, I had the most overpowering sense. But if I didn't become a Christian that very night, I probably never would. Listen, friends. There is a moment, I suspect, in a person's life when they are as near to turning to Christ as they probably will ever be. It is your time. This was the right time for this young man. He came to Christ in the right way. He came to the right person. He came at the right time. And fourthly, he asked the right question. He asked a question about eternal life. Now, I don't believe that was really a question about heaven. It's a question about life. It's a question about life now, not life at some to-be-decided time in the future. Uh, I guess I've told some of you this before, in fact, I mean, Jonathan and Anna must have heard this almost ad nauseum at my turn, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you now, I mean, some of you know I have a daughter called Zoe who actually lives in, in Kenilworth. Um, my wife and face will join you. She lives in Kelly, a lovely Christian girl, we thank God for her. And uh, when Zoe was born, shortly after she was born, my wife took her along to the GP. And uh, I got this account from Rita when she came home and said, how'd you get on? She said, well, she said, the doctor sat at his desk and I came in and sat down with Zoe on my lap. And she said, the doctor sort of looked at me over the top of his glasses, you know, you know how people sometimes do. I feel like saying, we're going to say, get some lenses which work when they're in front of your eyes. <laughs> Looked at Rita and Zoe over the top of his glass and said, Oh, now, he said, I see you bought little, um, oh yes, yes, you bought little Zoe to see me. Rita said, that's right. He said, oh, that's a lovely name. Rita said, yes, we, we like it. He said, that's a lovely name, he said. It, it's Latin, you know, it means joy. Well, when Rita told me about it when she came home, I said, I hope you put him right. She said, no, I didn't like to really, he'd be the doctor. I said, oh, I would have. She said, well, yeah, you, you would have, yes. I said, he was wrong on both counts. It's not Latin, it's Greek. And it doesn't mean joy, it means life. And in particular, it means the quality of life that comes from God. What Jesus elsewhere called abundant life, what is sometimes called eternal life. It's not about duration, it's about quality, as well as duration. It's life now. 
How can I have what's missing in my life, says the man. I've got everything in my life which everybody else would think would make me the most happy and wonderfully contented person in the world, and yet there is something which is not there. The dots have not joined up in my life. I've got this hunger in my life which my money and everything else is not satisfying me. How can I have it? Now. Carl Gustav Jung, I suppose possibly the father of modern psychotherapy, said this, about one third of my patients are suffering from no clinically definable neurosis. No clinically definable neurosis. Medically and psychologically, there is nothing wrong with them. They suffer from the senselessness and the emptiness of their lives. In fact, he wrote, senselessness and emptiness can be defined as the central neurosis of our age. That's what's happening in this man's life. Everything in his life doesn't add up to everything that it ought to, if the world was right. He came in the right way, he came to the right person, he came at the right time, and he asked the right question, and fifthly, he got the right answer. Eventually. But do you notice that Jesus slowed him down slightly? I mean, it's quite probable that we don't have the full text of this conversation. I suspect that many times in the Gospels that is true, and probably nowhere more likely to be true than in the Gospel according to Mark. Because Mark would never use two words if one would do. I mean, he was the most incredibly economic writer. And so Mark generally tends to be rather telegraphic in the way that he reports things. So he comes, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus actually parks that for a moment. He says, well, hold on, let's just back up a bit. What are you actually saying about me? What do you believe about me? Because this whole business of eternal life is uh, inextricably linked up with and tied in with the question of the identity of Jesus Christ. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life, but it comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not something which exists outside of an experience of and a relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus says effectively, now just, just slow down and, and think, because you see, I, I believe this man was wrong in three, three ideas that he had. He got, first of all, a wrong impression about eternal life. He thought it was something you could inherit, possibly something you could buy, or merit, or do something in order to, to acquire it. He had a wrong view about Jesus. It seems that his opinion of Jesus was that he was a good man, possibly even a great man, certainly a good teacher, possibly even a great teacher. And he had not only a wrong view of eternal life and a wrong view about Jesus, but he had a wrong idea about how to be right with God. I, I suspect he thought that the Ten Commandments were some sort of ladder which had to be climbed a rung at a time to eventually get into a, a good position with God. And Jesus showed him in the consequent conversation that the commandments simply weren't going to cut it. He had done well, although probably not as well as he imagined he had, he had done well keeping some of the commandments. We see that in the text. Jesus didn't take him to task when he said he kept all the commandments from his boyhood. 
I suspect that if Christ had wanted to, he could have done so justifiably. I suspect the chap's sort of moral smugness was not very well founded, because remember Jesus said you may never have murdered anybody, and murder would be breaking a commandment, but of course if you become murderously angry with somebody in your heart, you have committed the sin of murder in your heart, and he offered other examples as well, some of which you will no doubt remember. But even if he had almost perfectly observed all the commandments which are mentioned in the text, there are four very notable omissions, aren't there? The commandments which have primarily to do with how we relate to God, Jesus did not test him on. Thou shalt have no gods but me. Before no idol, bow the knee. Well, it goes on, there's a poem, Take not the name of God in vain, nor dare the Sabbath day profane. Give both thy parents on a due, take heed that thou no murder do. It's a poem you can find it online, it's rather quaint, but it's been a very helpful mnemonic for me. But let's just take those two first commandments. Thou shalt have no gods but me, before no idol bow the knee. This man's god was money. That's why he was so distressed when it came down to a clear choice between either worship money, live for money, live for the acquisition of money, or turn your back on that false god and follow Jesus. His money was his God. It meant more to him than God. It had become his idol. Now there's nothing wrong with money. The Bible never teaches there's anything wrong with money per se. Earn it. Inherit it. Save it. Give it. Get it. Invest it. Do what you like with it, but the Bible says what you don't do, don't love it. Don't love it. Don't go all out for it to a degree that you squeeze everything else, including God, out of your life. Money had displaced God from the throne of this man's heart. And when Jesus said to him, you need to sell all, give your money away, sell everything you've got and then come follow me, that wasn't a condition for salvation for you and I. Money was his problem. You and I have other problems. We have other gods perhaps in our lives. What Jesus was saying was effectively this, you need to repent. You need to turn your back on the God of money and you need to turn and follow me. Repentance in the Bible means to turn. It means to change your mind and consequently, subsequently to change your direction. I think about the football manager who appointed to take over a failing team, a struggling team, said in the television interview, he said that his intention was we're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. Well, maths was never my strong point, but I'm pretty sure if you turn 360, you're facing the same way you were when you started, eh? He meant we're going to turn it 180. Repentance is doing a 180. Realising that something in our lives is bigger to us than God, looms larger to us than God, takes priority over following Jesus, do a 180. Repent. Turn away from it and then follow Christ. And here is a tragedy. And this is what, to my mind, makes this one of the saddest stories in the Bible. And makes this man a pathetic figure, actually, in some ways. It says, he got so much right. He came in the right way. He came to the right person. He came at the right time. He asked the right question. He got the right answer. And yet, he made the wrong decision. He walked away. 
He hung his head. His face, the Bible says, fell. You see, he wanted eternal life, but he wanted eternal life on his terms, not on God's terms. And he walked away sad. He made the wrong decision. And let's be clear, it was his decision to make. It really was. As part of the theological ideas and convictions we have, just for a moment if we can, this was a decision this man made. We've sung it today in a bit of a sort of reworking of a, a song written by a, a, a great converted Sikh evangelist, Sadhu Sundar Singh, over 120 years ago. He wrote, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. This man decided not to. It's as simple as that. He decided not to. And I want us to notice his choice was regretted by Jesus, but it was not overruled. It was regretted, but it was not overruled. It was respected by Christ, but he did not enter into negotiations. He did not run down the street chasing him, saying, I'm sorry, perhaps I came on a bit strong. Perhaps we can talk, find consensus, let's see if we can find some middle ground. Maybe you can just sell some of what you've got and follow me. Part of your time? No. Jesus watched him walk away, and the Bible says he watched him walk away and he loved him, but he let him walk away. He let him walk away. And that is just unspeakably, unspeakably sad. All the people, that young man, could have reached for Jesus. The churches he could have planted. The countries he could have visited. The communities he could have benefited if he turned to follow Christ. The books he could have written. We could have had a gospel. A fifth gospel written by this man. You see, there was a time when a tax collector turned and followed Jesus, when Jesus turned up at his customs booth and said, follow me. Do you know his name? Matthew. There was a Galilean fisherman who collaborated with Christ's plans to give him a new name and a new purpose in life. What was his name? It was Peter. As a man climbed a tree to see Jesus and then he climbed down to meet him personally. What was his name? Zacchaeus. We know their names. We don't know this man's name. He walked out of history and into obscurity. And all the potential that he had to be a servant of God and a man of God and an influencer of other people for Jesus. Gone. And I just wonder, I know it's speculative, but I just wonder if in his final moments on this earth, dying almost certainly an extremely wealthy man, did he remember that moment? Came so near him. And then he made the wrong decision. Now look, friends of Kenilworth, this is not a game for me. This is not an exercise in public speaking. It's really not. I am in absolute earnest about this. I really believe that this could be the day when someone here could say, All right, Lord, I'm going to turn to you full throttle, no holding back, no turning back. Whatever's in my life that's keeping you out, I want to turn away from that. I'm going to turn and follow you, Jesus. I want to give you the rest of my life, whether it's weeks, months, years or decades. I want you to have it. I want you to be number one in my life. That's what it comes down to. This man would not have Jesus as number one in his life because there was already something occupying that.
places. And today we have the opportunity. We are not all of us young. We are not all of us wealthy. Money is perhaps not the problem for many of us. But we are all of us here, and this is the time to give your life to Christ if you never have. There is no possibility of anybody being right with God unless God does a real miracle for them and in there that's what the passage goes on to, to teach. We can't buy salvation, we can't merit it, we can only receive it as a gift. And for those of us who do what the young man failed to do, we put the Lord first and we follow him, will we be the losers for that? Not according to this. Not according to this. God will give us compensations, not only in heaven, but in this life. For those things which perhaps we don't do, can't do, can't become, but others seem to go on and do so well in, because we're putting Jesus first. I, I'm not sure I entirely understand that last part of the passage in verse 30, um, verse 29, I tell you the truth, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, home, fields, and with them persecutions. That's an interesting little idea, isn't it? <laughs> Just a little sort of caveat slipped in there at the end. And with all these wonderful things, you get some jolly persecutions as well. I'm not sure I entirely understand that. In fact, I'm sure I don't entirely understand that. But I will tell you this. That through no merit of my own, there are homes in over 20 countries and four continents around the world where I can turn up at the doorstep unannounced, feeling lonely, away from my wife and my family and all that's safe and familiar. And I can turn up at the doorstep of people all around the world and they would welcome me as a returning uncle or brother or friend and I would have the joy of being temporarily part of their family and that is a wonderful thing wonderful thing to be part of the family of God let's pray Lord we are so sorry that this young man turned away from you we thank you that still you give people opportunities to turn to you as you are doing right now. We pray now, Lord, that you will help us to turn to you if we have never done so, to be real with you in a degree that we've never previously done. Help us, Lord, to turn away from those false gods, those things before which we bow down, and to return Jesus, number one, King of Arms, and to follow him without compromise, without surrender, without flagging. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.